If you have a Bible, take it out. Find the Gospel of John chapter 9. There are notes in the bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to discuss this morning. We left off last week. We covered most of John chapter 9. We're going to finish John 9 this morning and put a bow on it. I want to begin, before we look at the text in John 9, I want to begin by just reminding you of the big overarching purpose of the Gospel of John. It's from John chapter 20. John sort of shows his end at the end of the book. He says, Jesus did many other signs. And this morning we are talking about one of those signs. So he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When I read that statement, we've read it so many times on Sunday mornings, I always just want to stop and say, I wish you had told us more signs. I wish you had told us about all these signs. At one point at the end of the gospel, John says, the whole world could have been filled with the books that could have been written. And I just want to say, I wish you would have tried to fill the whole world with all the books and we could have heard all these stories. But this is what John is saying. He's saying, I've included a very selective number of signs. I haven't told you all of the stories that I could have told you. But the ones that I've included, I've included for a purpose. And the purpose isn't just to satisfy your curiosity about what Jesus did on earth. The purpose of these signs, John 9 included, is that you would read it, you would hear it, you would believe the truth about who Jesus is, and that by believing that truth, you would have life in Jesus' name. That's the ultimate in-game goal for us this morning. And each week as we work through the Gospel of John and we talk about these signs, is that we hear the Word of God, we believe the truth about Jesus, and that by believing, we walk away knowing life. Now, I just want to mention a few things to sort of set the stage for the end of John 9. These are things we mostly talked about last week, and so we'll move through these pretty quickly. The events of John 9 probably took place several months after the events of John 8. And I mentioned to you last week the, the transition phrase in John 9-1 is sort of vague, it's sort of loose. We left off in John 8. The Pharisees were so mad at Jesus and the things that he was saying, they had literally picked up rocks and they were ready to throw them at Jesus to kill him. We pick up in John 9 and he says he's just sort of passing by. So more than likely, several months have gone by. Everyone has calmed down at least a little bit. But now Jesus is back in Jerusalem around some of the same people who have already decided to murder him. Uh, some of the details we talked about last week in this sign or this miracle or this healing. There's spitting in the mud. Uh, Jesus sends him to a pool called Siloam. And John tells us that means sent. And I told you last week, I don't think you need to over-spiritualize some of these details. You can read commentaries, you can read uh, internet pages. People have all sorts of fantastic theories about why he spit in the dirt, why he put mud on his eye, why he sent him to this pool. I just think all of these details are set up for what happened after the miracle. I don't think there's really any spiritual significance to them. I think all of those details, the way Jesus healed this man in a unique way, is set up for the interrogation that we looked at last week, where the Jewish leaders call this blind man and his family in, right? The details set up that interrogation, and all of these unique details set up the actual conversation between Jesus 
and the man who was born blind that we're going to look at this morning. Just to remind you where we left off in the story, when the blind man refused to confess a secret sin. Remember, they they wanted to know, what have you done that caused this blindness? And he refused to confess any secret sin. He refused to accuse Jesus of sin. You remember, they sort of backed him into a corner and they said, we know that this man is a sinner. We just need you to agree with us. He's not going to confess secret sin. He's not going to accuse Jesus of sin. And when he refuses to do either of those things, they cast him out of the synagogue. We read last week that his parents were afraid this would happen to them. That's why they didn't stand up for their son. They were afraid that they would get thrown out of the synagogue. And what they feared actually happened to the man who was healed of his blindness, he was thrown out. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that phrase, they cast him out or they threw him out of the synagogue, my mind naturally goes to a Western movie. And I picture a a scene in a saloon and maybe a poker table and somebody cheats and somebody gets mad and there's a scuffle and maybe there's a bottle or two broken over somebody's head. And then at some point, either the good guy or the bad guy grabs the other by the scruff of the neck and the back of his britches and throws him out the plate glass window out into the street and he's there in the horse trough and it's this big dramatic scene on Main Street. That's not what's happening here, okay? Leave that in your Western mindset. What's happening here? is they're essentially saying to this man, you're no longer to worship with us here at the synagogue. It would be like me or one of our elders coming to you and saying, look, we've just reached a point. You're on this page. We're on that page. You can't come here anymore. You can't just come and pretend like you're one of us. This disagreement that we have is too strong. It's too severe. You're no longer welcome here. And I want you to understand that for this man being cast out of the synagogue is not like us running you out of a manual. It's not like he could just sort of easily go down the street to the very next synagogue and just slide in and no one would notice like you could do at another church. Essentially, when they cast him out of the synagogue, they're separating him from the people of God and from the worship of the people of God, and they're saying, you no longer have any part with us. So They cast him out from the synagogue. That brings us to the big idea. It's the same big idea we talked about last week. Very simple. Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind. And on the most basic level, we're looking at Jesus healing a blind man. A man who was blind from birth, miraculously receiving the ability to see. But on a deeper level, you might even say on a truer level, We're talking about Jesus, the light of the world, the light who was in the beginning, John 1, coming into the darkness that those of us who are lost in sin and darkness and rebellion might see the truth and the glory of the gospel and have eternal life. This is exactly what John wants to happen in writing this story, right? I'm writing these signs so that you would believe the truth about Jesus and that by believing you would have life In his name. And this story fits into that purpose. Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind. So we're going to read the passage. It's very short, especially compared to what we read last week. John 9, beginning in verse 35. You follow along as I read. The scripture says this Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, 
and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this Christmas season, we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate the light of the world entering this dark world. We celebrate Jesus coming to restore the sight of the blind, to heal the lame, to cleanse the leper, most of all, to forgive sinners. Father, this morning as we look at this episode from Jesus' life, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth. We need you, Father, to enable us to see, and we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't mean to alarm you. Christmas is 17 days away. That's all you've got, 17 days. How many of you are 100% done with your Christmas shopping? Anybody? Wow, not many. As I look at some of those hands, I would expect it from some of you. Some of you have probably been done since October. How many of you haven't even started? You haven't bought a single Christmas present. More hands. You have not bought a single Christmas present. How many of you don't intend to buy any Christmas presents? There you go. If you need advice for kids, you can get online. There's all sorts of toy lists. Amazon would love to suggest a number of things that your kids or your grandkids might enjoy for Christmas. Lots of popular things. Might I suggest something that comes with sturdy packaging? Because what's really going to happen Christmas morning is that whatever you put under the tree, the paper's going to come off, the toy's going to come out, it's going to be really fun for about five minutes, and then all the attention in the room is going where? The box. You might just save yourself the trouble and buy some boxes. You can get them at Home Depot, Lowe's. That's what the kids really want to play with is a box. And this frustrates a lot of parents. They think all, the, all these, you know, toy lists and they, they do all this research and they say, this is the thing, my kid's going to love it. And they open it and they're so excited and then they put it aside and they just want to play with the box. And they say, hey, do we have any scissors? Do we have any tape? Do you have a Sharpie? I, I don't want that thing. I just want to play with the box. And I know that frustrates parents, but on some level it's probably good for your kids or your grandkids to spend a few minutes playing with a box rather than staring at a screen. We're going to do enough screen staring this holiday, so let them enjoy their box time. It's not the end of the world for a a kid to play with a box. You can probably think of simple things that you used to play as a child, things that didn't involve chargers and downloads and Wi-Fi, and maybe you remember uh, Red Rover, playing Red Rover, right? There's no better way for someone to get their Adam's apple just really wrenched out of socket than a good game of Red Rover or Mother May I, I'm always shocked when we play Mother May I with our kids. All you have to say is the name of the game each time. 
Mother, may I? And I'm amazed. They just forget to say it. You tell them to do something, and they get so excited, they don't do it. So maybe you remember games like that. Maybe you remember a game like hide-and-seek. When I was a kid, hide-and-seek was one of my favorites. And as a parent, hide-and-seek is one of my favorites to watch my kids play. Not to participate necessarily, but just to watch them play. I love watching them hide in a spot that they think is really, really a good hiding spot. And you just look there and you think, they're going to see you. They're going to find you. And I love hide-and-seek because I love when you help your kids get in a really good hiding spot and you say, now you just have to be quiet. You just have to be quiet. Don't make any noise. They can't do it. It's impossible. They're going to make noise. They're going to wiggle. They're going to get an itch. They're going to sneeze. Something's going to happen. And this is my favorite part of hide-and-seek. This is what I really live for. There's a part in every game of hide-and-seek where one kid quits but they don't tell the kid that's hiding. They just quit. And you just wait and you say, how long till the other kid comes out and says, hey, what's going on? Why didn't you come find me? So I loved hide and seek. When I read this story, especially the end of the story, it makes me think of a game of hide and seek. And on the front part that we talked about last week, it seems to be Jesus that's hiding, right? He heals the man by spitting in the dirt, making mud, putting it on his eye. He can't see anything. He says, go to Siloam. Somebody has to help him get to Siloam. By the time he gets there and he washes everything off his face and he can actually see Jesus is gone. And there's a big, long debate and interrogation of the man and who did it, where is he, what happened, how did it go? And Jesus isn't there for any of it. It's almost like he's hiding. But then you come to the back end of the story And Jesus is the one who goes looking for the man. You realize when you read the back end, he's not hiding from the man. He's just picking a spot. And when the time is right, he's going to find this man. He's going to have some very important things to say to him. That's the first truth that I want you to see this morning. Truth about the light of the world from John 9, 35 to 41. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to seek, to go looking for, to find sinners. Sinners don't go looking for Jesus. Jesus goes looking for sinners. And you saw this at the beginning of the passage. If you just flip back to the beginning of John 9, we looked at this last week. The text says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This man was not looking for Jesus. And you may read verse 1 and say, well, it just seems like a a chance meeting. It just seems like a coincidence that their paths crossed, but it's no coincidence. Verse 2, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus knew this man long before he knew Jesus. And he had a plan and he had a purpose for his life. Jesus knew everything about him and he had a plan to reveal the works of God in his life. After he can see, it's the same story, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And what happened? Jesus found him. He went looking for the man. The man was not out looking for Jesus He was talking about Jesus. He was answering questions about Jesus. But it was Jesus 
who went out of his way to find this man. Can I just remind you that it's always that way in salvation? It's always that way when somebody meets Jesus. I understand that a room of people like this, we could all take a turn and tell the story of how we became a follower of Jesus. It happens in different ways, different circumstances, different people are involved. There's a different process maybe for each of us. But behind all of it, Jesus is the one who came looking for us. And you may tell your story of salvation a little bit differently than I would tell my story of salvation, but if we really boil it down and we really back up all the way, we've all got to agree, look, Jesus is the one who came and found me. Do you remember the story from John 1? I know it's been a long time since we talked about John 1, but there's a story in John 1. Jesus has talked with uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, some of the early disciples, and then the, the text says at the end of John 1, Jesus found a man named Philip. The text says, Jesus found Philip. And he talks to Philip, and they have an interaction, and Philip is so excited to meet Jesus. Philip goes back, and he immediately finds, Philip finds his friend Nathaniel. And do you know what Philip says to Nathaniel? Philip, so excited that he's met Jesus, comes back to Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel and Philip have a conversation, and they, they both end up going back. But when you read Philip's word, he comes back and he says, we found the Messiah. You understand, Philip felt like he found Jesus, but John, in telling the story, has already pulled the curtain back and told you, no, 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 no. Jesus found Philip. It's always that way. In salvation. We've talked about this a number of different times as we work through the Gospel of Luke. We talked about Luke 19:10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's not the lost who go looking for Jesus. It is Jesus who comes to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle Paul says it the exact same way, Romans 5:8, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Not while we were out looking for God, trying to do our best, trying to earn our way, trying to be obedient. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He came to seek us and to save us. Paul says it this way to the the church in Ephesus. He says, God was rich in mercy. He loved us with a great love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead and he made us alive. John says it this way. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. This is a beautiful gospel truth. Can I just remind you how good this truth is? We've been working through the gospel of John, and in recent weeks, we've been talking about the fact that left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. Left to ourselves, we are slaves to sin. Left to ourselves, we do not naturally have a relationship with God. Sin separates us from God. Look, left to ourselves, we have no hope of salvation. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus comes to find us. I saw a short little video online this week. It was from David Platt, used to be president of the International Mission Board. He's telling a story. He was in Asia, and he was talking to a group of people who believed that every path up 
the mountain led to God and he's trying to explain to them the difference in what we believe as Christians and what they believe. And he said to these people, he said, I understand you believe there's a mountain, God's at the top and every path leads up and you can go this way and I can go that way and we're all gonna sort of meet at the top. And they said, yes, that's exactly what we believe. You've got it, you understand it. And then Platt said something brilliant. He said, let me tell you about the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that the God on the top of the mountain didn't wait for you to climb to the top of the mountain. He came down to the bottom of the mountain to find you. That's what John is describing in this story where Jesus has healed this man physically, but he's not done with him. And they cast him out of the synagogue, and John simply says, having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? found the man. Look, this is why as a church, we have to be committed to local missions and world missions. We don't sit in this room with the mindset of, we're just waiting for those people out there in Odessa to come in here, then we can tell them something good. If they would just get up on a Sunday morning and show up here, then they're going to hear some good news. We don't do that. We ought not do that. We ought to live with the mindset of, we're going to them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He came and found us. He didn't wait for us to feel our way towards him, but he went and found us. We're going out to find those people. That's why we ask you to give to our world missions offering. I tell you every year, this is the most important offering we collect as a church family because with all of the money that you give, we are literally sending people out. What are we sending them out to do? To find those who are lost. Don't wait for them to come to church. Go out and find them. Seek them. We do that because Jesus, the light of the world, did that for us. Here's the second truth. Truth about the light of the world. Number two, believing in Jesus involves worshiping Jesus. All through this middle part of the Gospel of John, John is explaining to us what does it really mean to believe That's the reason he wrote the gospel, that you would believe in Jesus and have life. The question is, what does it look like when you really believe? And John's been adding to this through John 6 and 7 and 8. and He said things like, believing in Jesus means you stick with him when everyone else leaves him. Because he has the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else for you to go. You're with him no matter what. Believing in Jesus means abiding in him, walking with him, living with him. He's told us earlier, believing in Jesus means we love him. We have affection for Jesus Christ. And now he's adding to that, and he's telling us that believing in Jesus involves worshiping. Jesus. Look at John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. That probably didn't look exactly like our worship looks like this morning where we have a band up front and you're standing out here and we're singing together, but it was worship. He believes and he worships. This is why Jesus came to seek you and save you. This is what God wants to do in your life. 
Sometimes we think about Jesus and Christmas and the gospel and we say, man, this is great. We have something exciting to celebrate. Jesus has come so that when we die, we can all go to heaven someday. It's true. He came that you could have eternal life. That's true. That's gospel truth. But it's also true that he came to make you a worshiper. He came to turn you into a person who worships, not yourself, not money, not the things that the world tells you to chase after, but who worships the true God. We've seen this in the Gospel of John already. Do you remember John chapter 4? Jesus is talking with the woman at the well and uh, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus says the hour is coming, and it's now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father, here's our word, is seeking such people to worship him. He is seeking for people to worship. He's not just seeking for people to stamp your hand and say, now you have admission to heaven. He will give you admission to heaven. He will give you eternal life. But he also wants to change you into a person who worships. The Father, think about this, the Father is seeking to do that in your life. Jesus, the light of the world, died on the cross for your sins for this end, that you would be a worshiper. The Spirit of God, in the act of regeneration, gives life to dead sinners so that this could happen in your life, that you would be a person who worships. The Father is seeking this. The Son died for this. The Spirit is active today, making this true in us. He is seeking people to worship. That's what happened at the very first Christmas. Right? Christmas is not just now we have something nice to put on our greeting cards that we send out with a family picture on one side and a, a nice manger scene on the other side. Christmas is really about worship. Look at Luke chapter 2. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. What are they doing? They're praising God. They're worshiping God, saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's a worship service at the very first Christmas. That's the point. That's why he's born. That's why he died. That's why he sends the Spirit to give us new life. And in the end, Father, Son, and Spirit will accomplish this mission of creating worshipers. Look what we read in the book of Revelation. After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Not just a few, not just a small group, not just a tiny remnant. A great multitude could not be numbered. Every nation, all tribes, all peoples, languages, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we continue reading this. All the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped. They worshiped God, saying amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what God wants to do in your life. And this is what he will be successful in doing in the end. Not just getting people to heaven one day, but turning sinful people into people who worship. That happens through the light of the world. 
The last truth is this, truth number three. An encounter with Jesus results in salvation or judgment. And I'm going to be honest with you, the end of this passage is really strange. I mean, it's a strange story, the way Jesus heals the man and sets the whole thing up. It's unique in the healing stories you read about in the Gospels. But the end is just, it's a little bit shocking. Verse 39 is a very curious, very surprising change of tone. Verse 39, he's just worshipped Jesus. And you expect Jesus to say, yes, this is what it's all about. And instead, Jesus says, for judgment, I came into the world. That doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? Maybe you should put that on your Christmas card this year. Merry Christmas. I came for judgment. Jesus. Hope you have a great holidays. I mean, what do you do with this? He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who, who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. I think you've got to remember what's happening in this moment. I think you've got to remember who's involved in this story. You've got a group of men all the way through John 9 who think they see things spiritually clearer than anyone else on the earth. I mean, they think they really have it all figured out. And Jesus, in effect, is saying to them, look, those of you who see so clearly, in the end, you really don't see a thing. You don't see what you think you see. And these blind, lame, lepers, Pharisees, tax collectors, prostitutes, these ones who are, are blind, in the end, they're the ones who are going to see. You're not going to see anything. It's almost as if Jesus is comparing these two groups, saying to them, when you have an encounter with me, you're going to either come away better or worse. You're going to walk away from that encounter either closer to me or further from me. And there really is no place for neutrality. It's amazing to look at all of the people who are listening to the very same words out of Jesus' mouth and to look at the ways that they respond. These people hear Jesus say that, right? He, He finds the man, he talks with him, the man worships, and immediately... All the Jews, all the Pharisees want to do is argue. They just want to argue. And they, they bow up to Jesus and they say, huh, 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 are you saying we're blind? We can see. We know the Torah. Are you calling us blind? They just want to argue with Jesus, and Jesus just sort of shuts the whole thing down and says, look, in the end, those of you who think you can see, you're not going to see anything, and those who are blind are going to see everything. They're all listening to the same thing out of Jesus' mouth. It makes me think of when our family goes to the movie. Now we're at a a stage of life where we have boys and girls. We have a teenager and a four-year-old, and we go to the movies together sometimes. And it's kind of hard to find a movie that everyone is going to like, right? Mom and dad and teenager and little brother. And usually our experience now is we go to a movie and we watch it, and some of us walk out saying, that was amazing. That was really good. And the rest of us have to be waking up like from a nap, right? Your feet are kicked up in the recliner. and you say, Oh, it's over. Okay. Well, that was a nice $10 nap I just paid for. 
We have different responses, different reactions. It's fascinating. You've got one man in this situation who walks away seeing the truth about Jesus, believing the truth about Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Everyone else in the story, all of these Jewish leaders, all of these Pharisees walk away and all they want to do is argue. Can you imagine? Can you just think about it for a second? They're standing in the presence within arm's reach of the light of the world. The eternal word of God who created everything in the beginning. The light that came in to overpower and overcome the darkness. The Son of Man who came to seek and to save what's lost. The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man of Daniel 7 who will sit upon the throne. He's right there. All they want to do is argue. All they want to do is nitpick. They don't see at all their spiritual need. And they don't think Jesus has anything of value to offer them. And so their response is, we're going to argue. I just want to remind you that as you come to this place and you sit in this room week after week, you are having an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not walk into this room thinking that's what's going to happen. You may not walk out of this room thinking that's what just happened. You may not walk into this room prepared to have an encounter with the living God. You may leave this place feeling like nothing happened at all. Your preparation and your feeling and your personal subjective experience of it, all of that aside, when you gather together with the people of God for worship, you are having an encounter with Jesus Christ. This morning, you are having that encounter. You can walk away better spiritually or worse spiritually. There's no neutrality. There's no opportunity for just maintaining the status quo. You can walk away closer to the Lord Jesus Christ or you can walk away further from the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you look at this story, you listen to the truth about Jesus And rather than coming away skeptical, rather than coming away with a thousand questions, rather than trying to argue with John about why he said this or didn't say that, rather than argue with Jesus about why he did it this way or that way, that you just walk away believing. Believing the truth about Jesus. Having eternal life and worshiping. So I want to pray for you and myself.